Hello, uh, my name is Gareth Fuller. I'm one of the editors of Practical Neurology, and I'm delighted to be interviewing Professor Andy Schwartz, who is a professor at Pittsburgh, uh, who's come over to talk to us at the Association of British Neurologists about some really dramatic and potentially world-changing uh, innovations in movement control. Um, perhaps you could give us the background to all, all these dramatic changes. Well, we've studied uh, the brain processes associated with volitional arm and hand control uh, over the last 30 years. And we found some pretty robust ideas, uh, discovered some concepts of how neurons in a region of the brain, the cortex actually, the motor cortex, um, change their firing rates in association with arm movements in a rather consistent way. In particular, they seem to be very sensitive to the direction the arm is moving. And not only the direction of the arm movement, but the direction of the wrist, the direction of the fingers. So once we understand the basic way these are represented in, in the way neurons fire, we can actually decode those movements when someone's intending to move, predict the movements rather accurately, and show that we have a good understanding of the way to decode these messages or pieces of information that are flowing through the brain. And once we were able to do that, um, we thought this would be a good way to help paralyzed people regain their ability to move their arms and hands. And so uh, we've developed that technology now and demonstrated it in two paralyzed subjects. And what we do is we uh, record their brain activity uh, with high resolution. We actually use intracortical electrodes so we can record action potentials from individual neurons. And we use um, that, those recordings and an understanding of the way these neurons fire to decode um, ongoing volitional movements. And we translate that, once we decode that, we translate that into a movement by using robots. So we, tend the, we send the uh, decoded messages to uh, sophisticated robot arms and hands, basically prosthetic arms and hands. Um, and then these paralyzed subjects can use them to perform tasks of everyday living. And the device, the robotic device, has been specially custom built. It was a very large project funded by the Defense Department in the U.S. And this prosthetic arm looks very much like a, a real arm, and it performs much like a, a real arm. So it has shoulder joint, elbow, wrist, a hand and fingers, a thumb that's opposable, and it's all the same form factor as an adult male arm. So it weighs nine pounds, it has the same shape and size, um, and it can lift 40 pounds. So it's quite a nice device. Um, so the idea is that we've shown that our subjects can use this device to pick up and manipulate objects, uh, open doors, uh, you know, shake your hand, uh, work in the world, and when they move, it's basically just about effortless for them. It's like um, controlling your own arm and hand, and um, they can do it with uh, skill and grace and a certain amount of dexterity. What we've done with our most recent subject is we've also implanted electrodes in his sensory cortex, and we use those electrodes to activate regions of sensory cortex associated with the fingers so that when the robotic arm touches an object, um, we have sensors on that, those robotic fingers, 
and we translate those signals to a sense of touch so that the subject can actually feel what, what the robot arm is touching. And how sensitive or how accurate a movement are they able to undertake uh, with these kind of implants? Well, when they're doing it very well, when, when they have good control, uh, they can uh, work fairly accurately. They can pick up cups uh, almost effortlessly. Um, they can pick up objects that are a centimeter or two across. Um, they're not really able to do super skilled dexterous movements like in-hand manipulation. Um, they're not capable of doing that yet, basically because we don't understand how the brain controls those types of movements. So one thing I'd like to emphasize is this is all possible because we have at least a rudimentary understanding of how these um, messages, how these movements, how the information related to movement seems to be encoded in, in motor cortex. And that allows us to do the decoding. If we don't have a knowledge of the structure of the way these messages are formed in terms of discharge rates of neurons, then we can't replicate the task. So I view this um, as a representation of how much we know about motor cortex at this point. On the flip side, what we can't do shows what we don't know. And how accurately does the implant need to be, or, or uh, how precisely does the implant need to be put in the motor cortex? Well, it turns out that these signals that we pick up are very widespread. Many neurons behave this way, not only in the motor cortex, but throughout the frontal cortex, parietal cortex. I mean, in monkeys, people have recorded from cerebellum, uh, basal ganglia, superior colliculus, and find these same sorts of cells. Uh, in humans, people have done peripheral nerve recordings in the leg and show that the basic directional tuning properties of those primary afferents also obey this kind of rule, namely that they're tuned to direction. So it's, it's very robust. We like the motor cortex because it's readily accessible. The neurons are large, so we can pick up the extracellular recordings very nicely from those. So y you can put it into an area of the motor cortex and it doesn't have to be exactly in the, in the previous places that we're controlling that part of the hand. The, the subject can evolve the use of function. Yes, so even though the classic maps of the motor cortex show that there's a somatotopy, and that is approximately true, um, it's not absolute. So that it's more, much more of a fuzzy body representation. So with any given area, you get multiple body parts represented within the same patch of cortex. Of course, we aim for the proper part. So we're interested in the arm area, so we put one of our recording arrays, and usually in the shoulder and elbow area, another array in the, um, you know, the elbow and wrist area, um, or the hand, the wrist and the finger area a little more laterally. So we do try to bias where we put them, but we don't have to be absolutely precise. Um, that's in contrast to sensory cortex. In sensory cortex, it seems that you have to be exactly in the right place. So if you want to stimulate an index finger, you need to be in the correct part of sensory cortex or you're not going to get the index finger. And right now, one of the problems we have is our arrays are relatively small. And so if we only put two arrays in sensory cortex, we can't possibly cover the entire hand area with those two arrays. 
And is there scope, if you have, were able to have larger arrays in the sensory cortex, to be able to be decoding the sensory information? Well, you know, these paralyzed people, they, they don't, we don't necessarily get input. We don't get sensory input from the periphery a lot of times, um, especially if they're not moving, there's no sensory input. So what we're doing with the robotic arm is we're stimulating the sensory cortex to provide feedback to the subject so they can actually feel what the robot's doing. And where does this go next? What's the next step? Well, so what we're working on in my lab, and, and we do primate research, is we're trying to do experiments now to understand the way um, the hand and fingers operate when you're actually manipulating objects. So there's a, you know, you change the shape of the hand to um, obey the affordance of the object, but then you have to apply forces to that object to actually interact with it. And we don't understand the way we apply forces to these objects especially with the fingers, which is very precise, mechanically complex. So we are trying to understand the basic rules of, of object manipulation with the hand. Um, and once we understand that, then we can now incorporate that into our decode and hopefully allow subjects to have much more dexterous movement. We'd like to have our subjects be able to button buttons and zip zippers and things like that so that they can perform needed tasks of daily living and, and really become independent. Um, I believe other groups are trying to actually use the paralyzed limb and attempted to re-innovate that to move that. Do you see that as a... Um, yes, ultimately that would be for someone with spinal cord injury, for instance, you'd like to reanimate their own limb and instead of having them rely on a robot arm. That is much more difficult. Uh, you have to not only activate the muscles correctly, but you have to understand the mechanics of the arm so that you can choose the right muscle patterns um, and activate the muscles with the right amount of force to generate the right amount of force to get the desired displacement. And that is a, um, if, if you actually model the arm and go through skeletal motor mechanics to try to understand that, it's a very, very tough problem. You have to know where all the joints are. You have to know the loads on each segment. You have to know uh, what the load on the hand is going to be. And that changes as the posture changes. So it's, it's uh, I, I don't think many people understand the complexities of that problem. Uh, it's not just making muscles contract. You have to really understand the mechanics of the limb. Um, so right now, uh, we in my lab are working on a approach to activate muscles using optogenetics. So classically you activate muscles or, or um, lower motor neurons um, by electrical stimulation, functional electrical stimulation. That has a number of problems, one of which is that you get um, an inverse recruitment order of the fibers. So what you do with that is as you turn the current up, the first thing you activate are large fibers which are fatigable. So what happens is the, the muscles fatigue rapidly when you're using FES. The nice thing about optogenetics is it works in the opposite way. So the small fibers are recruited first, just like the Henneman size principle would say is supposed to happen. So uh, you can activate um, muscles and they're much more fatigue resistant yeah, in the other way. And then also you can be very precise. So you put these viruses in specific muscles, um, the, the virus is taken up by the nerve, the um, 
optogenetic uh, channels are then inserted into the axons going back to the muscles, just those axons going to those specific muscles. So theoretically, you can uh, have a very refined activation of specific muscles. So in many respects, this is the future. When do you think it's going to be coming into clinical practice? Well, um, right now, you're absolutely right. Everything that we've done has just been laboratory demonstrations. And that's basically technology bound. Uh, and it's very low hanging fruit. And there are a number of things that could be done within two or three years that would really um, translate this research into home use. So one thing we need is telemetry. So right now, since these are intracortical arrays, um, we have to have plugs on the subject's head, actually mounted to the skull, going through the scalp. Um, and these are actually the, when you look at the safety issues, this is the number one safety problem. Okay, you know, when we go through the FDA to get this certified, we have to identify potential complications. That's number one. In fact, our first subject uh, was implanted for two and a half years, and we had to end her experiment because the scalp started to recede around those plugs, um, uh, raising the possibility for infection, and for safety reasons, we had to remove the implant. Um, so, number one thing, I think, is we want to use telemetry, um, and then a wide range of options come, become available. The subject could operate devices in their home wirelessly. Uh, the care, you know, that you don't need skilled technicians to uh, apply the amplifiers to the top of the head. It's just basically a switch. It can be on and off all the time. So this could take place independently of skilled personnel. Um, and now they bec it becomes available in the home. So that's number number one in my book. And you, you said two or three years. So you think that's, that's the kind of technology which is very clearly within range? Yes. So we already have detailed circuit diagrams and technology laid out. Uh, we know exactly what needs to be done. We're just right now we're lacking the financing to make it possible. So, so actually that, that brings up an interesting point. It seems to be, uh, you know, there's to, to get the basic demonstration, there seems to be financing for that. And I think, you know, once you have a product ready to go, there's financing for that. But in between, okay, trying to get this, you know, you have to do a little bit more circuit development. You have to work out leads and hermeticity and, and these kind of issues. That's a little more difficult to get funding for. So industry doesn't want to fund it. Government doesn't want to fund it. So you're sort of in this valley of you know, problems in terms of financing. That's where we find ourselves right now. But um, the future is uh, not very far away, subject to some relatively modest steps as far as you're concerned. Yeah, so, you know, this is not, you know, a huge leap in, in any regard. Of course, you could use much more sophisticated technology, but even with the current technology we have, we can make a very nice device. Well, thank you very much, I think it's been absolutely fascinating to look into the future. Thank you.